When I was a child, I was brought up on Enid Blyton books. I don't know if people here are too old to know Enid Blyton books or whether you perhaps brought up your own children, perhaps, on Enid Blyton books. I hope that you are at least somewhat familiar with them. I used to read books about the famous five and the secret seven when I was a bit younger, even noddy, and books like that. And in one of those stories, uh, the famous five, uh, if you don't know, they're uh, three siblings, Julian, Dick, and Anne, and uh, the five are made up of their, in addition to them, their cousin, George, and of course her dog, Timmy. And these are the famous five who get into all sorts of adventures and mysteries. Uh, but in one story, they make friends with a gypsy boy who is called Sniffer. And the reason he was called Sniffer is, you can imagine, because he had a terrible habit of sniffing and wiping his nose on his sleeve. And in the end, Anne, one of the famous five, uh, gets infuriated at him, and she gives him a brand new handkerchief. And Sniffer is overjoyed at this gift, and he can't thank her enough for this wonderful gift of this beautiful clean handkerchief. And Anne thought the problem was solved. But the next time they saw Sniffer, sure enough, he was sniffing as much as ever. And in even even greater fury, Anne turns to him and says, where is the hanky I gave you? And beaming, Sniffer brings a small wallet out of his pocket and inside, carefully folded was his handkerchief, and it doesn't have even a crease in it. And he explained that he kept it there always in case it ever got damaged. Now, we laugh at that foolishness, because, of course, a handkerchief is no good unless you use it. Uh, But the truth is, Christians can sometimes treat the Bible in a similar way. Uh, They perhaps honour and respect it. Uh, They would never dream, perhaps, of placing it on the floor. Perhaps it has pride of place on their bookshelf. They perhaps make sure that even the corners of the pages don't get folded. They diligently care for their Bibles. And yet many Christians who revere and honour their Bibles would also have to admit they don't really understand it. They honour it, but they do not understand it. And in this letter to the Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews warns of the danger of not uh, marinating, not abiding in this book, not letting the words of this book transform our lives. Uh, In previous weeks we've looked at, haven't we, how he is warning these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, uh, that they have sort of grown stagnant in their Christian life. They haven't moved on. Uh, They've basically settled at the place where they were. Uh, They've thought, I've learned enough. I don't need to learn anymore. I know the essentials and that's enough. But the author of Hebrews says, beware. Don't simply stay still, because if you stay still, actually what will happen is you fall back. 
Uh, He warned them at the end of chapter 5, by now you should be teaching God's words. Uh, God saves us, and when we are first saved, we are like little newborn babies, and we should be earnestly desiring God's words. But the reason we should desire God's word is so that we grow, so that we become more mature, so that we increasingly discern good from evil, so that we might be able to teach others. And if we don't do that, the author of Hebrews warns that we are putting ourselves in great danger of sliding backwards. And as I said in chapter 5, he refers to a character in the Old Testament called called Melchizedek. And he gives them a warning. Uh, He says how Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. The author of Hebrews says, I have all these wonderful things I want to teach you about this uh, man, Melchizedek, and how he points us to Christ, but you've grown dull of hearing. Uh, You've grown careless with God's words. You might revere it in your minds, but you've stopped, stopped seeking to understand it for yourselves and to grow by it. So he says, I, I, I hesitate to teach you about Melchizedek because you won't understand it. But nevertheless, after his warning, when he comes to chapter 7, he decides that he will. He almost can't help himself. He's going to teach these Hebrew believers more about Melchizedek. And that's what I'd like to do this evening for us. Uh, Look at this chapter to see what we can learn about Christ from this character called Melchizedek. And as the author of Hebrews says himself, uh, it is a passage which is quite difficult to understand. Uh, So I don't want any of us to be too disheartened if we find this chapter difficult. But perhaps at least if you do find it difficult, see it as a spur, see it as an exhortation from the author of Hebrews to dig deeper into God's word, to seek to understand God's word better. It's a good test to see how deeply we are invested in God's word. So let's dive in. Let's dive into this chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, and find out what we can learn through the author of Hebrews about Melchizedek. And the first thing we need to understand in order to understand this chapter is that in order to be a legitimate priest in Israel, uh, you had to be descended from Levi. Uh, You had to be of the tribe of Levi. Um, It would take too long to look at all the verses which teach that, but uh, you can look in the first five books of the Bible. It's made very, very clear that God said the priests... Those who were to make reconciliation between man and God, the people and God, had to be from the tribe of Levi. And the high priests, they had to be descended from Aaron, who was himself descended from Levi. And that was a very strict rule in Moses' law. Uh, In fact, when others tried to take on the priesthood, people who were not of the tribe of Levi the consequences were always disastrous. You might remember how uh, Saul attempted to offer a sacrifice, and you know how that ended. Uh, Remember Uzziah, 
and Asa and others as well who sought to um, be priests even though God had forbidden them because they were not of the tribe of Levi. But this raises a problem for the early Christian believers because, as we've learned already, they taught that Jesus is our great high priest. But anyone who knows anything knows that Jesus was not a Levite, let alone a descendant of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Judah. That's why he was born in the city of David, because that was Judah's, uh, that was the place where the descendants of Judah had to go, the descendants of David. And David, of course, was a descendant of Judah. And so this was a problem. Uh, the Christian believers thought, well, how, how can Jesus be our priest when other kings in the Old Testament, descendants of Judah, when they tried to be priests, they were judged of God. And you can almost imagine um, the early Jews pointing this out to the early Christians and saying, no, you can't have that. You can't have Jesus as a priest because he is not a Levite. And apparently they would have a point. Uh, Look at verses um, 13 and 14 of chapter 7. This is what Um, the author of Hebrews writes, he says, For he, that's speaking of Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. There was no way a son of Judah, a descendant of Judah, could become a priest. And that raised a huge, seems to raise a huge problem. You can always imagine the early Christians going, hmm, how do we answer that one? How do we get round this? Well, Hebrews tells us the answer. And Hebrews gives us the answer by going all the way back to Psalm 110. If you have your Bible, it might be helpful for you to look this up. Uh, He goes to the book of Psalms. And he goes to Psalm 110, which was written centuries (coughs) before Jesus was even born. And he goes to Psalm 110, and he points to Psalm 4, to verse 4 of Psalm 110, which says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110 is a very famous psalm, uh, because this is probably uh, the most famous psalm speaking of the Messiah, the promised king who would rescue his people, as I say, written many centuries before Christ. And this psalm is all about who the Messiah would be, and speaking of his greatness. And in verse 4, God himself says that the Messiah will be a priest, He's the Messiah, so he's the king, but he will also be a priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Messiah was never intended to be a priest of Levi. That was never God's intention. Instead, he's going to be a priest of the order 
of Melchizedek. God's plan was never for the Messiah to be descended from Levi. He was going to be a different sort of priest altogether. But you might be wondering, but it's all very well, but who's Melchizedek? Who is this man who is spoken of so much in this book of Hebrews and referred to in Psalm 110? Well, we first read of him in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 14. And there are only three verses, three verses about Melchizedek in the whole Old Testament, apart from Psalm 110 as well. And I'll read those three verses to you now. Uh, In Genesis chapter 14, uh, Abraham has just rescued his nephew Lot from the kings of Sodom and Chadaleoma, uh, Chadaleoma king of Elam, and he's rescued his nephew Lot because his nephew had been taken captive. And as he returns back home, he meets Melchizedek. And I'll read um, from verse 18 of Genesis chapter 15. Uh, God's word reads, And Melchizedek, (coughs) king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hands. And he gave him tithes of all. That's all we learn of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. He was a king, he was a priest, who received tithes from Abraham, and who then blessed Abraham as he journeyed back from his battle. Now, Melchizedek is the first priest mentioned in the Bible. Uh, He's the first priest ever mentioned. But that is all we learn about him. Yet in this chapter, in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews takes those three verses and he explains why Melchizedek is so significant. And I've sort of boiled it down to three things. Uh, Three realities that we can learn from Genesis chapter 14 about Melchizedek, which teach us how significant Melchizedek was. And the first one is Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Did you notice uh, what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 7? He said... In verse 2 of chapter 7, he says of Melchizedek, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. What he means there is the, the name Melchizedek, if you translate it, means king, Melchi, Sedek, righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. And if that's not clear enough for you, Genesis chapter 14 tells us he was king of Salem, quite possibly uh, king of the city that was later to become Jerusalem, perhaps. So Melchizedek, although he was a priest, he was also a king, which was very different to the priests of Levi, 
In Moses' law, the priests and the kings were distinct. They were separate. And God was very strict that they should remain so. But not so with Melchizedek. He was both a king and a priest. So he's a very different sort of priest than Levi and like Aaron. But then the author of Hebrews tells us something else about him. Uh, He points out that Melchizedek stands alone. Um, Melchizedek almost comes out of nowhere and he disappears into nowhere. He just sort of appears in the middle of the passage. Now, if you wanted to be a priest in Israel, first of all, you had to be sure you were a Levite. That was kind of like the bottom um, level bar. If you weren't a descendant of Levi, then there was no good desiring to be a priest. And if you wanted to be a high priest, you had to be descended from Aaron. In other words, if you wanted to be a priest in Israel, it mattered who your parents were. If you did not have the right parents, if you were not descended from Aaron or descended from Levi, then it was no good desiring to be a priest. But who were Melchizedek's parents? We have no idea. His parents aren't even mentioned. His parents are not relevant to his priesthood. With Levi, it was crucial. With Melchizedek, it didn't matter. All that mattered was that God had chosen Melchizedek to be a priest from his own free will. Nothing to do with genealogy, nothing to do with family tree, nothing to do with family, purely God's choice. That's the second significant thing that the author of Hebrews mentions about Melchizedek. And did you notice also that we learn nothing about Melchizedek's death? Um, we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. Uh, with the Levites, you can look at Aaron's descendants and you can see a list one after another of so-and-so who gave birth to so-and-so who gave birth to so-and-so and he died and gave birth to him and he died and he gave birth to him. And each of these Levitical priests had to be replaced again and again and again. That's what Levi's priesthood was like. But we never hear anything about Melchizedek's birth. We never hear anything about his death. The point isn't that he didn't die. The point is his priesthood did not depend upon that. That wasn't what his priesthood was based upon. Unlike Levi's priesthood, where when one priest died, his son came to take his place. Melchizedek's priesthood is not like Levi's. And this leads to the third and last um, significant reality that Hebrews brings out from Genesis chapter 14. He points out that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. He points out that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, looking at those verses in Genesis, uh, you might wonder, uh, how did... Hebrews know that. How could he make that claim that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham? And in our culture, in our society, it's perhaps not so obvious. 
But to those reading Genesis, it would have been completely obvious. Did you notice what it said Melchizedek did to Abraham in chapter 14 of Genesis? It said Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham. You say, well, what's, what's, the, what's the significance of that? Big deal. Well, Hebrews tells us why that is significant. Uh, look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Uh, in verse 6 it says, uh, Melchizedek's descent is not counted from them, from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is, the less is blessed of the better. What Hebrews is saying there is that you don't bless someone who is greater than you. Blessings are bestowed on someone who is greater to someone who is less. Uh, It's fathers who bless sons. Uh, It's masters who bestow a blessing on a servant. You don't hear of a son bestowing a blessing on his father. Uh, You don't hear of a servant bestowing a blessing on his master. Uh, You don't hear of a slave bestowing a blessing on a king, though a king may bestow a blessing on a slave. So when Melchizedek here blesses Abraham, he's acknowledging that he is greater than Abraham. It's quite an amusing uh, passage, actually, later on in Genesis, uh, where Jacob, we might look at this on Tuesday at the Bible study, uh, but when Jacob uh, is finally brought to stand before Pharaoh, Joseph uh, brings his father to stand uh, before Pharaoh, and we're told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is, is completely befuddled by this. And he asks Jacob, how old are you? And it seems a strange sort of conversation to have, but Pharaoh can't understand why Jacob, this peasant shepherd, is blessing him. And the only thing he can cling to is because Jacob is so much older than he is, being about 147 at the time. Because blessings are bestowed from someone greater on someone less. So Melchizedek is acknowledging that he is greater than Abraham. And Abraham accepts the blessing. But it's more than that even. Uh, Did you notice what it said Abraham did to Melchizedek? Uh, It says that uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now a tithe is obviously a tenth. Uh, It's a tenth, and in this case, it was a tenth of the spoils that um, Abraham had won from his battle with these five kings. But it's actually more than just a tenth. And a tithe frequently was the best tenth. Uh, We might be tempted, I don't know if um, some of you perhaps might tithe, and uh, perhaps if uh, you lived in Israel and you were tithing food, you might be tempted to keep the best for yourself and give the worst tenth Give that to God or give that to whoever was in need. But that's not what a tithe was supposed to be. It was supposed to be the top tenth. It was supposed to be the best tenth. That's what a tithe was supposed to be. And that's what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And by doing that, he was showing honor to Melchizedek. Abraham himself was acknowledging that Melchizedek was greater than he was. And the author of Hebrews goes even further still. 
Um, Because listen to what he says in verse 8. He says here, men that die receive tithes, and there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Sounds very complicated, but all he's saying is this. If Abraham acknowledged that Melchizedek was greater than himself, how much greater was Melchizedek than Levi, who was Abraham's great-grandson? In the Bible, frequently, um, the father is often described as greater than the son. Uh, Even in our own society, we acknowledge that. Um, A son should show reverence and honor to his father, uh, not the other way around. Um, And that's a very clear structure of biblical society, that a father is greater than his son. But Abraham was the great-grandfather of Levi. So if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, how much more would Levi need to pay tithes to Melchizedek? So that's the chief point. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And that means Melchizedek is greater than Levi as well. And his priesthood is more significant than Levi's. So in short, uh, from these three short verses in Genesis and coupled with Psalm 110, Hebrews is able to show us that Christ, Jesus Christ himself, can still be a priest even though he was from the tribe of Judah, even though he was not from the tribe of Levi. And not only can he be a priest, actually he is a better priest than Levi. His priesthood trumps Levi's at every point. If we had time, uh, we could look at verses uh, 21 onwards, uh, or verse 22 onwards, where Hebrews goes into more detail about why Jesus' priesthood is so much better than Levi's. And over the next few weeks, uh, we will see more in more detail. Uh, But let me just close by just pointing out three things very briefly. Uh, Three ways Christ's priesthood is infinitely better than Levi's. Uh, why he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Levi. Now, the first way Jesus' priesthood was better was because he will never die. Uh, Levi's priests all died. Uh, Levi died, his son died, his grandson died, his great-grandson died, his great-great-grandson died. Uh, There's a whole litany of priests in the Bible who died They could not endure forever. But Jesus, Hebrews tells us, lives forever. He died once, but as we were looking at this morning, he rose again. So he ever lives. He always lives to make intercession for us. We can always rely on him because he will never die, unlike the priests of Levi. But secondly, Jesus' priesthood is better because the Levi's priests were all sinners, When they offered their sacrifices, they had to offer for themselves as well as the people. 
Uh, the very reason they died was because they were sinners themselves. They had to deal with the problem of their own sin, let alone the sin of the people. But what is Jesus? As James said on Friday, he's the sinless lamb of God. Uh, Jesus did not have to pay for his own sins. All he had to do was pay for the sins of his people. That's the second way his priesthood is better than Levi's. But thirdly and lastly, Jesus' priesthood is better because his sacrifice is better. Now, you remember what uh, the priests of Levi had to offer. Uh, They had to offer bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and various sort of offerings which you can read all about in the book of Leviticus if you would like to. But the Bible is very clear. Those sacrifices could never pay for sins. At the very best, they were kind of IOUs in lieu of payment later. Uh, They satisfied God insofar as they were pictures of the full payment that would be paid later. But Jesus' sacrifice was that payment. Uh, The Levi Levi offered the blood of bulls and of goats and of lambs, but Jesus offered his own blood, which was infinitely more precious than the blood of a sheep or a goat. And when he offered his sacrifice, it was all done. It was all settled. It was all finished. Uh, Did you notice what it said in verse 27 of uh, chapters, uh, verse 27 of chapter 7 of Hebrews? Uh, It says of Jesus, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He did it once, and he does not need to do it again. Again, as James said on Friday, uh, he had those, one of those last words on the cross were, it is finished, accomplished, paid in full. No more sacrifices necessary. That is the third and perhaps the most wonderful way that Jesus' priesthood is better than Levi. And why he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek not after the order of Levi. And as I say, as the weeks go on, God willing, uh, we'll be looking at, in more detail at the ways in which Christ's priesthood affects us in our daily lives today. Uh, but as we close our service, we're going to sing our final hymn. And I must admit, I don't think I've ever sung this hymn before, um, so, um, so apologies if you're in the same boat, uh, but I hope you'll see the words just fitted so well the theme of the passage is 257. A good high priest is come, supplying Aaron's place and taking up his room, dispensing life and grace. The law by Aaron's priesthood came, but grace and truth by Jesus' name. So let's stand to sing 257.